This podcast, episode 8 in the Pathologies of Solitude series, was recorded in February 2020, before the global pandemic and COVID-19 locked down the UK. This is a podcast for the Pathologies of Solitude project at Queen Mary University of London. In this series, Places of Solitude, we're talking about different aspects of the history of solitude and especially how they might link to places. In this special episode, we'll be discussing solitude and spiritual life. And very aptly, we're in the Crypt Chapel at Lambeth Palace. This is one of the oldest parts of the building, and although it wasn't used as a chapel until after the Second World War, it's now used every day for morning prayer. It's an extraordinarily atmospheric place, and I'm very pleased to be here with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and the historian, Professor Dermot McCulloch. This really is such an atmospheric place to be having a recording. Justin, is this somewhere you can come to find spiritual solitude yourself? Very much so. Actually, we, it's not just morning prayer. Most days of the week, we are here morning, midday, and evening. And after evening prayer, which is half past five, from about ten to six till about half past six, there's a period of silence in here. And even if the communities together, the community of St Anselm, as we call them, which is people doing a sort of ten-month quasi-monastic life resident here, together with our resident monastic community, even with them, it is a place of quiet and engagement with God in absolute silence and we have the sacrament on the altar and we're quietly meditating before the sacrament. So it sounds like silence is very important to your kind of spiritual life here in the crypt. What about solitude? Solitude, well, I have the huge good fortune to live in a flat at the top of Lambeth Palace so long as I cling on to this job. So I do come down here as a place of solitude, but also a thin place. It's solitude in the sense of being with God, but by oneself. And, and it, it's, it's a very, as you've said, it's a very resonant, uh, thin place. Does that speak to your experiences of spiritual life and solitary prayer, Dennis? Yes, it does, but I, I'm inclined to solitude by nature, being an only child. Ah, uh, me too. <laughs> so am I. No. Oh, so that makes that. all three of us. <laughs> so right. I quite like solitude. Well, and if you have a happy childhood, you learn to be very happy with your own company. I, I had friends, of course, but I really enjoyed going back to the extraordinary country rectory in which I grew up, so the whole of my childhood, a ridiculous house, the sort of thing the Church of England has now sold off, 21 rooms, seven acres of ground, just me and the dog a lot of the time. And that remains my default experience. Uh, and attached in, uh, to that experience, the experience of the, the lovely medieval parish church, which uh, was one of my dad's cures uh, down the hill, so rather like this crypt chapel, that's, that was a, very much at the centre of my life. I mean, in, in a sense, it's the, the place on earth which I regard as home. And I have to say, particularly when there was no one else there, I would fill it with the sound of organ music, uh, but otherwise it was 
my place when there was no one there. And I still go back and I still feel that, uh, as Justin said, that that's a thin place. The Church of England is so lucky to have thousands on thousands of such places. Absolutely. I'm, I'm fascinated by what you say. I was also an only child, but not in a happy upbringing, moved around with divorced parents and all kinds of difficult circumstances and um, substance abuse around and all that. And then I went off to boarding school when I was uh, just over eight. And of course, the characteristic of boarding school is there is no solitude. Yes. Ever. Yeah. And I remember that uh, one of my delights was the library because although, again, there were people around, it was quiet. You could be within yourself without people constantly banging into you and, and all the goings-on that go on at schools. So rather like Dermot, for me it's... Uh, the memories of moments of solitude amidst the hurly-burly were very precious. We've kind of heard this idea of thin places. Could either of you say a bit more what you mean by that? I mean places where I can lie back, perhaps sometimes literally, and feel the place take over. I'm an inveterate church crawler. I'm an obsessive church crawler. I've seen thousands of churches, and there are one or two, particularly in Norfolk, where there's not a congregation left. It's not that people don't go, there's no one to go. And these seem to me one of the most full places. Thin is, is one way of putting it, but they're full of memories, they're full of the presence of the God for whom they were built. Uh, and I seek such places out with delight. I, I have what I call a micro-holiday once a year, doing just that. Maybe ten churches of, in a day uh, in remote Norfolk. Uh, and, and I look back to these as an enormous resource for the busy life I otherwise lead. Yes, yeah, so it, it, the phrase, legendarily, whether it's true or not, or apocryphally, comes from the Celtic tradition. They talked about thin places, places where God was seemed close. And um, I think there, there do seem to be places. One of my favourites is in Canterbury, the church which Augustine first built in Canterbury itself, using Roman bricks from a predecessor church, probably two or three hundred years older. And that is, is, is an extraordinary place. But I would also look at places like Durham Cathedral. As you say, I spent much of my childhood in Norfolk on the North Coast, Blakeney Church and mm. Cly and places like that. And those are thin places yeah. as well. And do you think there's a sense in which solitude is particularly good for spiritual life, that there's particular spiritual benefits to solitude? Well, I don't know what Dermot thinks. I think it... I think it's partly personality, but I think it's also there's discipline involved. There's a spiritual discipline to the use of solitude. Solitude by itself is neutral. It can be harmful. Uh, loneliness, solitude is one of the most painful experiences of life for many. I'm... Uh, a couple of months ago, my stepfather died, and 
watching my mother as she comes to terms with solitude after 44 years of marriage is, you see, it's a very difficult thing. So solitude is in and of itself, it seems to me, neutral. To make it valuable, ironically, paradoxically, you need some company, some help, some what in French is called accompagnement, accompaniment in which people enable you to use solitude. It's one of the things we see in the community here. So solitude is a tool that put to good use can really enrich spiritual life then? Yes, absolutely, but can also be a menace. It seems to me that it's the, the ground of spiritual life. Mm. Uh, people are great, people are horrible, and you need to experience both. Mm. But you do it best if you can retreat into an experience where there's no one else there but you and God because one of the, the fundamental principles of all religion, and Christian religion in particular, is know thyself, nosce te ipsum. If you don't confront yourself, then you are lost in the end. And you need to do that in quiet without anyone else in Absolutely. the conversation. All sorts of aids may be there. Books. I'm surrounded by books at home. Music can go through your head. And, and there is the, that experience of solitude to which I've already referred, in my case, playing the organ. Is that solitude? It's a funny sort of solitude because I'm actually having a dialogue with uh, a keyboard through my fingers and hearing sounds. I'm creating a personality around me. But the, it, you could say that that's a sort of accentuated solitude, an enriched solitude. Yeah, I guess this thinness again that you've both spoken about that you might be on your own, but then you feel that perhaps you're in company. Is it easier to hear the word of God than solitude? I think it's not always easier, but it's essential. I very much pick up on what Dermot just said. In the lives of the, particularly the, what are called the desert fathers, the early saints who, who went off into solitude in the desert or some kind of solitude as hermits, the greatest battle they all talk about is with themselves. They spiritualize it in various ways, but for them, that was it. And I think for almost every human being, the biggest fight we have is with ourselves. It's a huge struggle to come to terms with who you are, to accept who you are, to be content with who you are, and yet constantly to be developing and, and changing. I think solitude is an essential part of that because without it you fill your life with activity, at least I do, and you charge on and you never have a moment to um, reflect on who you are. One of the great things about Lambeth Palace, as you may have heard in the background, is there's always a bit of noise going yes. on. <laughs> it's funny because it's such an oasis of peace in some ways, and then you've got that kind of background well, hustle, we've got, haven't you? We've got 60 people upstairs all working <laughs> away and slamming doors. Yes, I mean, the Bishop's Palace is such as this, are one of the very few survivals of a culture which was everywhere in uh, the medieval world. Mm. The great household buzzing with life. But usually in a Bishop's Palace, you'd have at least two chapels. You'd have a private chapel for the great man, as well as the public space. 
And that was clearly psychologically very important. Yes. And the ritual of the mass or the, the offices are actually also a form of silence. It's a collective silence, you might say, because you can only say the words which are there. You cannot say the words which you might want to say out of selfishness or ebullience or, or fury or whatever. It's the liturgy is a, a rather specialised form of silence. I'd never thought of that in those terms, but the office here and the Eucharist, half past 12, are absolute essentials. There is a general rule that meetings are not arranged to go through those times. Exceptions are made, but we're pretty strict about it. And I will always go, a bell sounds, and we go off. And you're absolutely right. It is a moment of... Solitude sounds a strange way of putting it, but because there can be 60 or 70 people there. But there is a, it is a sort of solitude, and exactly as you say, you only say the words in front of you. I, I have a confession in front of the primate of all England. There's an aspect of modern <laughs> Anglican liturgy which I detest, and it's called the peace. Mm. And it is the moment in the Eucharist where uh, we all rather oh. awkwardly shake hands with each other or think, should I embrace this person? And suddenly we're, we are caught in this socialising thing, which, frankly, I don't find at all helpful. Luckily, I often sing in choirs, and choirs often get out of this by, by fiddling with their hymn books and getting ready for the big bit of music coming next. So I'm afraid that, uh, that there's something which the Church of England might have to think about in future. <laughs> I think it thought about it for roughly 400 years, Professor. Mm. And uh, I'm... I, Never, never too late to have second thoughts. <laughs> I think the piece, well, we won't get too much in that, but the piece reminds us that we are a body as well as an individual, that yeah. we're part of the corporate. That? And I've been much immersed because it's coming up in the Lambeth Conference in uh, Peter's first epistle. And the piece is all the moment, also the moment where you recognise the others who are also as uh, St. Peter puts it, strangers and aliens in the world. You are together as God's people. But, I mean, I, I know lots of people. I was in a, one of the churches where I was a parish priest, one of the congregation, the church treasurer actually, invariably used to say, I am a peace-free zone, <laughs> which he was in every possible sense. <laughs> that was wonderful. We've, the word silence has come up quite a lot, and I think we kind of conflate silence and solitude sometimes, Dermot. You've obviously written on this topic. Do you find that your personal practice, that silent solitude is important? or kind Yes, of, yeah, okay. it's essential. And... Life here is pretty busy, and when there isn't that moment a couple of times a week of silence and solitude, it's, um, you notice a lowering of spiritual capacity, of sense of call, of direction. You begin to react to events rather than seeing the stream of things. I don't know, Dermot, what... Oh, completely, yes. I mean, it, it is the foundation of a good solitude. Uh, and, and silence is a very powerful thing. Mm. Both of us spend a lot of time in public speaking, and I think we'll, what we learn is that silence is an extraordinarily good way of getting attention. <laughs> you say something, 
and silence. They want to know next. And the same is true of music, because there, music is shaped by the silences in it uh, to an extent yes, which people absolutely. don't realize. So the, the, there is a power in silence which is really important. And, and Justin's also said about solitude, uh, which, uh, that it, it's a double-edged thing. It can go either way. It's a neutral thing which can be bad as well as good. Same is true of silence. Uh, and, and one could think of very bad silences which are actually shouting to be ended because there are things yes. which should have been said. Uh, and Absolutely. that's the other end of the, the great silences which uh, the, the mystics uh, in, the, in the desert work towards, which are silences to cut themselves off from selfishness, from self, to uh, get beyond that. I think that I entirely agree. And Now, if I confess to uh, Dermot, uh, one of the things I hate in liturgy is when the rubric says silence is kept. You know, you're meant to say, let us pray, and then it says silence before you pray the collect or something. And what normally happens is, let us pray in silence. Oh, God. <laughs> yes, <I know. laughs> and you think, oh, I didn't even have time for a breath. There was yes. no silence. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I give it a full 15, 30 seconds, which in a yeah. cathedral in the, the mass can feels like a long time. But I think you're also right. The, the silence of the hostile silence. I grew up with many of those. I remember that. That silence that is full of noise, emotional noise. Not of peace, not of hope, but of bitterness, of struggle. That's a very um, bad silence. And your kind of work on sort of the history of silence in the church and perhaps thinking about solitude too, is there sort of a sense in which there are kind of to put it very basically bad and good silences in the history of the church? Of, of there certainly are, mm. yes. So uh, when writing a book on silence, the first half of the book, I made a history of basically good silence, monastic silence, hermits, the richness of meditation and the thing beyond meditation, which is contemplation. Mm. Meditation is a sort of active thing where you're still using your brain. Uh, contemplation goes beyond that. So all those are good silences. And then the second half of the book was lots of bad silences of various sorts. Guilt, uh, big silence, which I sort of thought was both bad and, bad and enjoyable, the silence of gay men in the church, particularly Anglo-Catholic gay men in the 19th and 20th century, when there was no way in which they could express themselves but they found ways, and there were silences in that set of relationships, quite comic, some of them, and then awful ones, awful ones about child abuse within the church. Mm -hmm. The silences of the things with which the church, about which the church had got terribly wrong, such as the church's consistent support of slavery for six, 1,600 years, and actually in, into the 19th and 20th century in certain parts of the church. Mm. So uh, and, and, uh, often the church tries to forget about aspects of history, and it's my uh, job as a mischief maker, otherwise known as historian, to remind people 
of the things that they don't want to hear. Yes, absolutely. Um, also, I love Mischief Maker as a historian. But yes, I think kind of being alert to the different kinds of silences, you know, um, partly as a very beneficial spiritual tool and partly as a kind of discomfort. I mean, I, I think when you were talking about sort of not giving enough time for the moment of silence, I wonder if it's because we're all a bit uncomfortable sometimes with silence and, and having to confront ourselves in that moment. I think silence can also be very elitist. And there's been an aspect of that, that you're somehow inadequate if silence is not at the heart of how you pray. There's a sort of looking down on uh, lack of silence. I entirely agree with Dermot that the silence of guilt, oppression, manipulation. I mean, the, literally, the silence over abuse of children and vulnerable adults, doubtless over the centuries, but certainly over the last 50, 60 years, deliberate suppression, which is now being uncovered, but is a change of culture that is is very difficult to manage. The silence over, I would agree again, the um, ill treatment of uh, uh, gay men, especially, probably, but also uh, the whole LGBTQI plus different people, how they've been ignored or just don't say anything, forced into silence. And, for, and the church has been deeply hypocritical about this. But the church is a deeply human institution and we have to recognize both the presence of God at work by his spirit in the church and the presence of human beings at work in their spirits in the church. And uh, that's one of the great journeys of the church, is out of silence. We recently were being much more open about, for instance, the great silence over the exclusion of black minority ethnic people you know, when they came to this country in the 50s, 60s, the Windrush generation, and subsequently and their lack of welcome, and, and it will go on, I fear, uh, because we will always get to the point where you can't deal with what you've done wrong in the past. A wise old Methodist once said to me that the uh, church is the body of Christ, and therefore it is full of wounds and sores. Ah, absolutely. That's a very evocative image. I wonder how much over, so particularly in the early modern period, clerics sort of seem to be a bit concerned about solitude and some preached against solitary religious spiritual life or practice. Mm. Is there a sense in which that might be because they were worried what might be going on when people were on their own that they shouldn't yeah. be doing? <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's, it's part of a revolutionary action against the old Western church and the, the power of monasticism in it. So they threw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes. Protestants were afraid of silence 
because they associated it with monasticism and they didn't know what to do with it and they were preaching a message so they wanted to go on preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching. They found that congregational music was a huge weapon in their armory and so they wanted people to sing and the result was that their worship is, was appallingly noisy. And the only church in, in the Protestant world in the 16th century which wasn't was Zurich, where the great pastor Ulrich Zwingli insisted on periods of silence in communal worship in the city. And it lasted for about 60 years. And the congregations in the end said, we're really bored. We haven't been able to sing it here in Zurich when we're actually printing psalters for people in every other church to sing. <laughs> so the, the, about 1590, the, the, the pastor said, okay, okay, we'll sing metrical psalms now. And the, and the silences went to bad moment. There was a possibility that Protestantism might have picked up. And it, it took 300, 400 years, really, for Protestantism to catch up with the Western Catholic tradition again. There's one of my favorite rubrics in uh, Book of Common Prayer is where it says, with a slight curl of the lip, in cathedrals and other places where they sing. <laughs> but you're a musician, you see. <coughs> you're, if I may say so, slightly conflicted there because very often we refuse to have silence because that choir has to sing an anthem. True. Or, you know, you're just hoping for a bit of a, a, bit of a pause. I, uh, when I was Dean of Liverpool, I introduced a period of reflection after the sermon. And because people used to get twitchy, we then said to the organist, you will improvise on the sermon, <laughs> which is a French, comes yes. out of the French tradition. Yes. And um, the organist said I'd ru ruined his life because it had been the tradition for many years that during the sermon the organist went behind the organ and had a, a gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> and now he had to sit and listen. <laughs> yeah. but, but that was an attempt to give pause, to mm. just bring everything just to a moment of reflection. We've been talking quite a lot about sort of communal church practice. Are there any kind of risks to sort of pursuing a solitary life? I mean, is there a stance kind of of the church currently on, on sort of spiritual solitude as kind of a way of trying to get closer to God? Within Anglicanism, <laughs> there's probably about, a, there's 80 million Anglicans, probably about 80 million stances on this, <laughs> probably true. more. Yes. Um, I mean, are there no, risks? There isn't. It's, it is, I'd be fascinated. Uh, well, um, I think I'd like to hear what Dermot thinks about Absolutely. that first. Well, Anglicanism and... Well, it is a big subject. Uh, the great thing about Anglicanism is that there's nothing to unite it except a tradition of liturgy uh, based on the Book of Common Prayer. And that makes it distinctive from other Protestant churches which don't have such a commitment, are still frightened of formal liturgy. Uh, so there's something which is a constant resource, uh, and it's not, a, it's not a, an unchanging resource, since the Book of Common Prayer is hardly used now, except for choral evensong. Uh, uh, but it's there as a basis, so there's something. And of course there is also the revival of the spiritual life in Anglicanism, mm. which fortuitously, by more or less historical accident, was never condemned in the English Reformation. Mm. They dissolved all their monasteries, 
But when the last monasteries were closed under Elizabeth I, no piece of legislation said, we're closing these because they're bad things, which meant that in the 19th century, mm. it was perfectly possible to revive them. And it, it's never been a, as huge a part of the Anglican tradition as it was in the Western Catholic tradition. But it's there. And, and here, of course, at Lambeth, uh, the Archbishop can talk better about this than me on the community which is set up here. Well, we set this up about five years ago. And in fact, as we're doing this podcast, two of the people who are listening have been in part of that community. It's called the Community of St. Anselm. And people come. We have a permanent community, which is actually Roman Catholic, called Shemaneuf. And they help and help lead the, the people who come from all over the world for about 10, 12 months through the academic year, essentially, but a bit longer. And they spend a lot of time in silence, a lot of time in silent retreats. Some of them will go towards the end of their time, April, May kind of time, and spend and do the Ignatian 30-day retreat, which is a silent retreat for 30 days of reflection and meditation on scripture. Most extraordinary period, which is totally life-changing for everyone who does it. It has a profound impact on people. And I think that's part of something I feel very strongly about is that the existence of monastic communities or communities of prayer and service in different forms, in a wide variety of forms, is essential to the life of the church. Without that, you lose that sense that you're not, as one of my church wardens put it once, just the rotary with a pointy roof. Sure. Mm -hmm. Justin, you've spoken before about being from a charismatic background and visitation from the Holy Spirit, which St. Paul the Corinthians says kind of comes to all of us. I'm thinking specifically about speaking in tongues, which I've always thought of as being quite a communal practice, but you've spoken about that happening when you're on your own in the morning, when you're in sort of quiet solitude. So how important is it to your practice that you're on your own when that kind of visitation comes? Essential. <laughs> Essential. <laughs> Far too embarrassing to do it in front of anyone else. Um, absolutely indispensable that I'm completely alone and nobody can hear me. M most people I know from that tradition who engage in that form of prayer. It, it's not ecstatic in any sense. It's very measured and controlled. Is, uh, it is only a small part of their prayer life. It is something that um, draws them closer and more deeply into the presence of God. It's usually accompanied by times of silence and followed by times of silence, certainly is in my case. And it's almost invariably alone. It's very rare that you, in, within even most Anglican charismatic churches, that in the main services you would hear the gift of tongues being exercised. Uh, and in fact, Paul in Corinthians makes it clear that um, it's to be treated with some care in public, in public worship. Um, and... Uh, uh, so it's, it's a small part of my prayer life, together with petitionary prayer, with silence, with meditation, and sometimes, 
by contemplation when I managed to tune down sufficiently to disengage the, the brain and simply be in the presence of God, uh, and so on and so forth. I'm a spiritual magpie. If something shines in the sense of drawing one towards God, I'll pick it up. And um, is there a historical precedent for kind of a fi finding the word of God in solitude? And I suppose in silence? It's a constant theme from the mm. second century. Mm. Uh, frankly, in the New Testament, it is difficult to find any basis for monastic life. I'd say that it's an import from Buddhism and Hinduism in the second century via Syriac Christianity. Uh, but it's, that's still a pretty good pedigree. It means that for 1900 years or so, the church has been involved in finding ways of using solitude, either the communal solitude of a shared community or uh, the, the, the hermit life, or something which actually has been lost in uh, the church since about 600, 700 AD, and that's two people in mm. uh, community life. It's, it's clear that this was something which happened a lot in the early church. Uh, and after that, the church found it difficult to handle for all sorts of reasons, I think. But there it is in the, in the tradition. Would it not, I mean, there's some aspects of going out in the desert. One can see the, the story of Jesus being driven out into the wilderness. Mm. Oh, yes. One has the, uh, one, one has the uh, tradition of Paul going and spending considerable period working out what had happened to him. Well, he goes off to Arabia, doesn't he? As, and we hear nothing more about it, uh, which indicates it might not have gone too well, really. All we hear is he went oh, off there. Oh, cynics. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I, I, coming back to Christ's temptation in the wilderness, that seems to me the best uh, image of solitude that you've got in the New Testament. And it is about struggle. Yes. Yeah, solitude is challenge, I guess. I, it's a struggle between it, they're personified as Satan and, on the other hand, uh, Jesus quotes back scripture. Yes. You could say these are two aspects of a spiritual life. One is you're, you're pulling after yourself, you're, you're dashing after yourself, represented by Satan. You do this and I will give you all this. And then the, the other is, is the use of the tradition to say, no, absolutely not. And so what does Jesus do? He, he quotes from the Hebrew scripture. And I think within that, to bring it into a very modern form of thinking, is the quest for identity. Mm. What is the identity? Is it this identity that's saying, dragging you on, as you, as you say, that is pushing you forward, that comes from within you? Or is it the identity that is found in the tradition that says, I am who I to quote a, a Scots preacher called Murray McChaney, I am who I am on my knees before God and nothing more, which is... Uh... That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to both of you here in the Crypt Chapel at Lambeth Palace. Thank you so much, Professor Derma McCulloch and Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project. 
generously supported by the Wellcome Trust and hosted by Queen Mary University of London. It was presented by me, Heta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. There are eight episodes in total, exploring the places and experiences of solitude across the centuries, including episode one, The Sanctum, which is about spiritual solitude and silence. Search for Solitude's Queen Mary and visit our website, where you can find out more about the project, as well as blogs about solitude in lockdown and beyond. (laughs) 